You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning again, and let me invite you to turn to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 13, verse 1 through 5. So this is where we're going to focus our attention today as we study God's Word. And so let me read the text for us from Luke chapter 13. I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get started seeing what Christ has to teach us today. So Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told them about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray to God. Father, we pray to you. And Lord, we ask that you would give us repentant hearts. Lord, that we would hear and heed the warning of Christ in this passage. Lord, that we would understand the urgency of repentance, the urgency of fleeing our sin and turning to Jesus. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as your word is taught, Lord, that it would be received and rejoiced in. And Father, as we think about what it means to live in these strange days in our country, and our world, in light of this pandemic, Father, I pray, Lord, that Christ's instruction would be heard by our generation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. So this COVID-19 crisis has, in just about every way possible, upended our daily lives, not just on an individual basis. I'm sure you've been affected personally, your family, with these restrictions, but this has affected us on a, in a worldwide scale, a national scale We have all felt the effects of this virus, whether it's just from the preventative measures of social distancing, whether it's from the economic disruption in our lives. Many people are becoming inflicted and infected with this disease and are are having to go through that process of recovery and some even death. And so as we think about God's word and what God's word has to teach us in these times, we have to remind ourselves that God is sovereign. That's the the absolute biblical principle that undergirds everything in the scripture, that God is sovereign. Jesus tells us that not one sparrow falls to the ground without his father's authority. So the Bible reminds us that, that everything is under the command of our Lord, our God, our King. Every molecule is in submission to God himself. So the Bible is consistent about God's sovereignty over everything. And as Christians, we have to remind ourselves, as those who believe in the authority of God's word and the sufficiency of God's word, we believe what God's word says is true. We believe that God is indeed sovereign, and therefore this COVID-19 crisis has not surprised God, nor has it caught him flat-footed, unprepared. 
We believe that we live in a world filled with purpose, a world being guided by our sovereign God through his providential working to bring glory to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. So though God is never the author of evil, we do understand that God sometimes permits evil for his own mysterious purposes. And we ought not to be arrogant or presumptuous in our judgment against God and his actions. But as Christians, we do wonder, don't we? What is God doing in this pandemic? This pandemic that has upended our civilization. Is God trying to teach us something? And if so, what is he trying to teach us? What is that lesson? Or is God judging our nation over its sin? Is this this pandemic, this virus, is an act of divine discipline, a chastisement from the Lord upon America and upon the earth? These are questions that I think a lot of people who love the Lord, who believe in God's sovereignty, they're, they're asking these sorts of questions. So last week we looked at Habakkuk. If you turned in last week, we reflected the very issue of questions themselves as a category, and we discovered from Habakkuk that oftentimes vocalizing our questions to the Lord strengthens our faith and enables us to, to lament before the Lord and that how questions before God help us and enable us to learn the lesson of living by faith. The righteous live by faith. That's what Habakkuk taught us. And it taught us to live in that confident assurance of God's will and purposes even though we might not fully understand them. So today I want to help us think through a different type of question. Not the why question, but the what question. Not why have you permitted this, Lord, but what are you teaching us, Lord? That's the question I want to think about today. And with this question, we have to tread very softly and carefully. After all, we don't have the prophets of old like Habakkuk and Jeremiah and, and Isaiah to give us a direct word of the Lord from the Lord to help us understand the specificity of what God is doing in these current events. So we have to be cautious. And rather than making some sort of sweeping judgment based on our own speculation of what we think God might be doing, we should speak cautiously and stick as close to God's word as we can. So this, what are you teaching us, Lord, question, I think it's become really pronounced in this season of national crisis. When a crisis like this engulfs the whole country, we wonder, perhaps is God teaching us something, not just as individuals, but as a nation as a whole? And as we think through this, I want to direct our attention to Luke chapter 13, verse 1 through 5. And I want to look at this situation in which the crowd approaches Jesus for a response in light of a national tragedy. But Jesus, in his response, he gives us one certain thing that I believe we can know in the midst of this teaching, in the midst of this crisis, this teaching that everyone must repent. Everyone must repent. So here's the, the sermon summary. We must heed Christ's call to repentance. We have to heed Christ's call to repentance. In many ways, Jesus, from God's word today, is going to be giving us a warning. It's a warning we ought to listen to carefully. We ought to heed. We ought to respond. So we must heed Christ's call to repentance. So as we do this, I want to think through this text very carefully and try to apply it to our own current day. So first, I want to think through 
recognizing two different categories of evil, the difference between moral evil and natural evil, two different categories of evil. So in Luke 13, we see two catastrophes are brought up in this text. Two of them, tragedies that are references of two different categories of evil that we find in the world today. So because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, the world is not as it should be. God's world has been marred, it's been distorted, it's been perverted from his perfect creation intention. That's what he designed the world to be perfect, all, but our sin has made the world broken. So as we think about life in this fallen world, it's incredibly helpful for us as believers to understand that there are kind of two categories of evil as we think about this current pandemic, the, the category of moral evil and the category of natural evil. So these two tragedies here in Luke chapter 13 are actually illustrations of both of those categories. So this text is very helpful for us. So we see a moral evil mentioned, Pilate's execution of these Galilean people. So the situation begins with this conversation. In fact, this seems to be the impetus in which the crowd brings this issue up to Jesus, is they come to Jesus and they ask for, for Jesus for clarity on this situation. So there was a slaughter of these Galilean Jews who were seeking to make some sort of sacrifice. And we really don't know much about this event other than what the text tells us. But these Galileans sought to worship the Lord through sacrifice in some way, and Pilate ordered their execution. So we don't know the specifics of the situation, but we do know that events like this were sadly common occurrences in the ancient world under Roman oppression, as the Romans liked to keep everyone in line mm -hmm. and often would make examples in order to keep everyone in line. So this tragedy, whatever it is, whatever its circumstance, this tragedy left an impression upon the hearts of Israel. And so the crowd comes to Jesus and asks Jesus, what does this mean? How do we understand this moral evil that was committed against these Galileans? Now notice that this tragedy is a good example, right, of what a moral evil is in the world. So what is moral evil? Well, by moral evil, we mean any injustice or suffering inflicted by the hand of another human being. Any injustice or suffering inflicted by the cause, by the action of another human being. So moral evil comes because others sin against us. Whether it's an individual, you're personally sinned by, against by somebody, whether it's a group of individuals, whether it's an organization or a government, moral evil is inflicted by human sin directly. So we see Pilate's execution here of these Galilean worshipers. They were... This is an example of moral evil. Pilate ordered this execution. But we also see another situation reference that's a good illustration of natural evil. Natural evil comes as a result of accidental or natural forces. And this is the other situation that Jesus brings up. This is the Tower of Siloam, most likely located right outside of the, the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. So apparently there was some sort of construction accident that led to the collapse of this tower. And when the, the Tower of Siloam collapsed, it killed 18 people who were inside of it. And so a tragedy like this best falls under the category of natural evil. 
This is a manifestation of the, the broken and fallen world in which we live. So what are some things that would fall into that category of natural evil? Well, you would have things like weather, hurricanes, tornadoes. You'd have things like just accidents. You'd have things like diseases and cancers, and of course, pandemics as well. So natural evil is caused by a world that is spun in rebellion against its creator due to human sin, due to our entrance of sin into the world through the first man and woman, creation has spun into chaos in rebellion against God's good intention. And so though individual human sin is not the direct cause for any of these natural evils in the world, at its core, all evil is brought about by human sin. So both of these tragedies, the, the death of these Galilean Jews at the hand of Pilate and the collapsing of this tower, they both illustrate the anguish that we often experience by living in this fallen world. These categories of natural and moral evil help us process tragedies that happen in our lifetimes. At times, we will experience the injustice and hate at the hands of humanity. Other times we will experience the, the corruption and fall of this world that is in rebellion against its creator. At times we will experience the, the moral evil of something like 9-11. Then at other times we'll experience a natural evil like Hurricane Katrina or COVID-19. So how do we understand this? Our sin, both every evil, both natural and moral, has its ultimate root cause in human sin. Our sin is the spark that, that lit the inferno of evil that we see all across this world, both moral and natural. So as we think about evil as a category, both natural and moral evil, evil does not come from the hand of God. God is not the author of evil. And to say so, to say he would be, is blasphemy. But yet we have to understand that these calamities, these tragedies, this, this is a part of living in this broken and fallen world that longs for its reconciliation and restoration at the end of the age through the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we face this COVID-19 pandemic together, we can place this virus clearly in the category of a natural evil. This deadly and disruptive virus was not caused by anyone's sinful actions, but rather it's a manifestation of the world's corruption due to human sin. So both moral and evil, natural evil remind us that the world is not as it should be. Perhaps we feel that more now than we have in quite some time. And it ought to draw our expectations, our longings, our yearnings, ultimately for the new heavens and the new earth, earth that Christ will bring at the end of the age. However, even these First two, these, these two first century tragedies, they help us recognize these categories of moral and natural evil, which I think is very helpful for us during this time, during this pandemic. But we also see in this text how Jesus does not respond to these situations. Jesus is a model for us, and he models for us that we should avoid any unhelpful speculation about the meaning of these events. And that's secondly what I want to highlight for us. Of course, we need to remember these two categories of moral and natural evil, but we also need to avoid unhelpful speculation. So when a tragedy happens in our country today, whether it's 9-11, whether it's a mass shooting, 
whether it's the coronavirus, there are well-meaning but severely misguided people who will stand before a camera on TV and who will attempt to explain these tragedies as an act of God's judgment for whatever reason. Normally, it's X, Y, or Z sin, right? And whatever sin it is, it's whatever sin that person seems to be most troubled with about our country. And ironically, it never seems to be their own sin. It always seems to be other people's sin. So, so we would be wise to imitate Christ here and not attempt to give some sort of detailed cultural polemic in light of these tragedies. In fact, it almost seems like Jesus is, is being asked these questions in hopes that he might provide some sort of political commentary. So we have to pay attention to what Jesus does not do in this passage. And let me just draw out three things that Jesus does not do. He doesn't speculate about the end times. Jesus doesn't overly speculate and try to set a date for Armageddon in light of these events. Though Jesus will instruct us, he'll instruct us to keep an eye out for the end of the age, to watch for the signs of the coming end, Jesus does not take Pilate's injustice of murder of the Galileans nor the collapsing of the tower at Siloam and use it as an opportunity for speculation about the end of the age. In fact, Jesus had been teaching the crowds to interpret the signs just before this passage. So look back at Luke chapter 2, verse 54 through 56. You see Jesus just give the crowd this, this sort of encouragement. So look at what it says in verse 54 of Luke 12. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So, so Jesus rebukes the crowd for failing to interpret the, the signs this, the, the importance of the era that they are living in as the Son of God has entered into the world. And, and perhaps as Luke chapter 13 is beginning, just a few verses later, perhaps the crowd is trying to follow Jesus' words. They're trying to put him into practice. They're trying to get Jesus' help. Jesus, help us interpret what this means. What does this slaughter of these Galilean Jews mean? What Help us understand. And so they come up to Jesus and ask for, for help in interpreting the present time. But notice what Jesus does not do. Jesus doesn't pull out his end times chart and explain how the last days start with Kirk Cameron getting left behind. He doesn't do it. In fact, Jesus doesn't take the conversation there at all. He doesn't even bring it up. And so his response, as we will see, is not that, that the crowd is not what the crowds expected, as Jesus so often subverts our expectations. So he doesn't speculate about the end times, nor does he speculate, secondly, nor does he speculate about those who deserve suffering and who don't. So Jesus also refuses to buy into the presupposition that seems to, that so many of the Jews believed in his day. And this is that, that assumption, right? That if you have suffering in your life, there must be some sort of personal sin that's the cause of it. That was the way the, the first century Jewish culture often thought, that if you're suffering, then you must have done something wrong. Many believe that if something bad happens to you, then God will, will bring, must be punishing you for something that you did. It's sort of this kind of Hebrew version of karma, which is clearly unbiblical. What goes around comes around. That's not, not the truth, but yet that's what a lot of people in the first century believe. 
And you can almost see how this presupposition is baked into the question that the crowds ask Jesus. And, and Jesus' response indicates their view. Do you think that the Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans before they suffered this way? You see, Jesus highlights their faulty reasoning as he answers their questions. And then he references the Tower of Siloam and does the exact same thing. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So like Jesus, we have to reject this faulty thing. Though sometimes suffering does occur because of the natural consequences of our sinful actions, that's different than attributing every suffering we experience in this life directly to personal sin. So let me, let me illustrate that for you. So for example, if you get greedy and decide, hey, I'm gonna start embezzling money from my company, and you get caught, you get tried, you get thrown in prison, there's a clear connection between your sin and the consequences of that sin. Yes, you are suffering in prison, but your suffering is clearly a result, the consequences of your sinful actions. However, it would be wrong to say, and this is what so many people in the first century were doing, it would be wrong to say that, well, you got diagnosed with cancer, you must have done something wrong. You must have upset God in some sense. That would be a wrong thing to say. Or, I lost my job, therefore, I'm not following Jesus safely. So that's working from the wrong direction. These are foolish speculations to make. Speculations that are rebuked throughout, the, throughout God's word. This sort of thinking is rejected, whether it's with Job and his lousy lot of friends that constantly try to reason with Job and debate with Job and say, Job, you're suffering. You must have done something wrong. Job insists on his innocence. Or the, the man that is born blind in John chapter 9 that Jesus heals who washes and is cleansed at the pool of Siloam of all places. So the story of the blind man in John 9 illustrates this. After Jesus heals him, he's brought before the Jewish leadership. His healing is investigated because they don't believe it really happened. And so John tells the events here in a humorous sort of way among the Jewish leaders. We see this sort of faulty assumption taking place. They, they can't have a category outside of either this man sinned or his parents sinned. There must be some sort of sin that contributed to this man being born blind. So, so here the presupposition baked in to the question in John chapter 9. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. You see, this faulty assumption that suffering is caused by personal sin, as Christians, we have to repudiate that. We have to reject that thinking. So if someone gets infected with COVID-19, we shouldn't try to attribute personal sin to the infection. And we must be cautious of putting the cause of this suffering onto the sins of a whole nation, particularly when God's word is silent on the matter. We have to exercise caution. So Jesus doesn't speculate on suffering either, doesn't speculate on the end times, but thirdly, Jesus doesn't speculate about political agendas. This is the third thing that Jesus does not do. He does not seize this moment, this moment of community crisis. He does not take advantage of it as a political opportunity. 
In fact, that might have been one of the, the crowd's motives in raising this question about Pilate's execution of the Galilean men. Perhaps they're hoping that Jesus will rebuke Pilate. He will publicly condemn his actions, that Jesus would side on the cause of, of the Jewish zealots who wish to overthrow Roman rule. Perhaps the, the, they're coming up to Jesus hoping to get that five-minute soundbite, that talking head interview that vindicates their political revolution that they can play on the news that night. But, but Jesus ne is never baited by such politically loaded questions. Whether it's commenting on the massacre of the Galileans or whether about whether it's to pay taxes or not, Jesus doesn't get into that. Jesus' kingdom is not of the world. He has no time for getting caught up in political pontificating. So that same tendency to make everything political recurs to this day. And it doesn't take long for any national tragedy in our country today, from mass shootings to terrorist strikes to global pandemics, to see the talking heads on the news networks and the politicians start seizing the crisis as an opportunity to exert their political agenda. You see, unlike Jesus, a lot of Christians get baited into this kind of stuff, don't they? They get baited into these unhelpful debates and sadly tarnish their witness to the resurrection of Christ in the process. So when a crisis hits our community, a lot of people, their first response, their first reaction is to start preaching a political platform of some sense. They'll start saying, well, here is why my party, my platform, my agenda, my candidate is the best. But Jesus doesn't do that. And neither should we. He avoids speculation. He avoids unhelpful debates. Jesus doesn't respond to the crisis in a way that anyone expects him to. In fact, he does what's, what's unexpected. So what does Jesus do? We look at what he doesn't do, but what does he do? How does Jesus respond in a moment of national tragedy? Jesus calls the people to repentance. He calls the people to repentance. That leads thirdly, we must heed the call to repentance. Two moments of crisis, but Jesus gives the exact same response. One crisis is a moral evil. The other crisis is a natural evil, but Jesus gives the exact same response. Jesus is consistent. He is united in his message to the crowd in light of these events. And I believe this is the message Christ would have us here today. Let's look again carefully at how Jesus responds. Look at Luke 13, verse 2 through 5. This is what Jesus says. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's the refrain. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is the message Jesus gives us to guide us in what God is teaching us in this current pandemic. Times of disaster are a beacon of warning of God's eternal judgment, calling us to remain, to, calling us to repent of our sin and to run to God. 
So the tragic slaughter of the Galileans or the collapsed tower of Siloam, it rang a loud and clear wake-up call for all. Jesus tells us that these catastrophes are sirens that interrupt and disrupt our daily routines to call us attention to the reality of eternity and to the state of our own souls before God. You see, and national catastrophes have a way of doing that, don't they? When things are calm, when things are normal, things are routine, a lot of people don't think about spiritual matters. They're not thinking about their soul. They're not thinking about eternity. They're too busy with their daily habits of life, their to-do list they've got to check off. But when tragedy disrupts us, disrupts those habits, and shakes up our routines, we are forced by the hand of God to contemplate eternity. You see, this viral pandemic of COVID-19 has disturbed and disrupted our routines on a scale unprecedented in our own lifetimes. We've seen our modern economy and our conveniences grind to a halt as most Americans now find themselves, perhaps like you are right now, at home, isolated. The kids are out of school. Our social calendar and events, our sporting events, they're all canceled. The trips that we had planned, we had to scratch them out of our calendars. They're not happening right now. And so the humdrum of our lives has now gone silent. And the American people are forced into a time of self-reflection imposed by the stay-at-home orders from our government. You see, a pandemic like this has a way of shattering the delusion of our own control, our ability to handle problems. And it exposes just how powerless we are before God. We're powerless before him. And so as we think about what God is teaching us in this, this this threat of death is looming over us. Thousands are now dead due to this virus. And that ought to disturb us. However, Jesus' warning, that siren call rings in our ears, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Notice the the emphasis that Jesus places on all. All. Repentance is necessary for all people, not just a select few. You see, repentance requires an about face, a turning away, a new direction to travel. Repentance is saying, Lord, I'm wrong. I've lived for myself. I've chased after the vanity of the wind. I've bent my knee to false idols. I recognize my sin and it grieves me. And Lord, now I see by your spirit that it grieves your heart as well. And so Lord, now I leave behind my sin and I come to the cleansing and forgiving Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is. You see, repentance is a vital part of the gospel message and our response to it. You see, the good news tells us that Jesus came and he laid down his life for us to wash us clean by his atoning blood and to gift us with his righteousness. Christ the Savior, that's who he is. But who does he save? Those who repent of their sin and trust and faith in Christ. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. They are the twin graces necessary for true conversion to take place within our hearts. Why is repentance necessary? That's what Jesus emphasizes here, doesn't he? 
unless you repent. Doesn't say repentance is optional. Doesn't say repent if you feel like it. No, he says, unless you repent. Well, we, we, we must repent because of how egregious our sin is. We must repent because all have sinned, as the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short, both Jew and Greek. Everyone is under sin. There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one that understands. There is no one that seeks after God. Everyone has turned aside. No one does good, not even one. That's the the whole argument of the first three chapters of the book of Romans. No one seeks after God. You see, the, the scripture gives us this startling, if not offensive, diagnosis of what's really wrong with you and what's really wrong, wrong with me is that we are sinners who have fallen short of God's glory and we're condemned before a holy God. So because of the dire state of our hearts, because of how serious the diagnosis, we should run to Jesus as our only hope and Savior. And the way we do that is by repentance and faith. Repentance and faith are two sides of the exact same coin. You can't have true faith without turning away from our sin any more than you can have true repentance without clinging to Christ in faith. It's the same action, the same turning. The two go together. We flee from one and turn to Christ. And here in our text, we see that Jesus emphasized the call to repentance. Unless we determine to leave behind our sin, Jesus gives us a startling warning. You will all likewise perish. We will all likewise perish. You see, sin is no small matter. It is no measly, insignificant, or inconvenient thing like a speck of dust on your shoulder that you can just brush off. Sin is repulsive. It is detestable. It is loathsome before God. And as sinners who have rebelled against this blameless, perfect, and holy God, our sin deserves God's righteous judgment. For God not to punish sinners would make him unjust. God's perfect character cannot allow him to just brush away sin as if it doesn't matter, lest he cease to be God, lest he cease to be righteous and holy. So God's perfections require him to be devoted to righteousness and to hate sin. Therefore, every sinner clinging to their sin will experience the eternal punishment that their sin deserves. They will all likewise perish. Jesus talks more about the eternality of hell and eternal judgment more than anyone else in God's word. And we have to heed his warning. No matter how much Christ has a way of making our modern consciences squirm. Here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter nine. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. 
See, Jesus is clear. The Bible is clear. Unrepentant sinners will face the eternal punishment of hell. This place where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched, it's eternal. It's forever. Every human being, due to the gravity of our sin and our rebellion against God, will fall into the eternal abyss of torture and a physical and literal hell. You see, hell is not some make-believe place, nor is it an adjective to spice up your sentences when you're angry. No, hell is literal, it is eternal, and it is terrible. And it is the eternal destiny of every human being apart from the gracious intervention of God in Jesus Christ. So we have to listen to Jesus's urgent warning in the midst of this crisis. He tells the people, yes, Yes, the Galileans were were slaughtered like animals at the command of Pilate, but so too will you be slaughtered in the coming judgment if you don't repent. And Jesus says, yes, that tower fell and collapsed in Siloam, killing 12 people, but unless you repent, you too will be crushed for eternity by the condemnation of your own sin. And yes, COVID-19 is Terrible, and people are suffocating to death in hospitals all alone because of this pandemic. But so will you suffocate and die for eternity if you don't repent. You see, these tragic events ought to awaken us to the reality of our coming deaths and help us to see the, our urgent need for eternity, our desperate need for salvation. So in this pandemic, I plead with you, I implore you to urge you to, to hear Jesus' warnings because apart from Christ, you are in danger. You're in danger without repentance. You will spend eternity apart from God. You will perish unto eternity. What's happening in this world right now and the, the suffering that we are seeing day in and day out is nothing compared, nothing compared to the punishment that awaits unrepentant sinners. The only hope, the only solution, the only healing, the only salvation that we have is through Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the gracious Son of God who has come to take on our punishment, to bear the condemnation that your sins deserve, that my sins deserve. He has come to be crushed in our place. So because of Christ, sinner, abandon your former way of life. Abandon it. Forsake your filth and your depravity and run to Jesus and implore him for mercy. Repent of your sin. Repent of it and turn to Jesus this day for your salvation. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we are saved. It is Jesus alone who can save your soul. I can't begin to understand all the reasons and why God is permitting this pandemic to dismantle our world, nor am I going to, to speculate about the end times or try to use this virus to promote a political agenda. The loss of life is too great for all that. And the spread of this infection is a tragedy and an unprecedented scale. All of this has been caused by the natural evil that we have unleashed as humanity upon this world do our sin. However, Jesus helps us understand today. Understand what God is teaching us through it, what he is summoning us to. 
God is beckoning us to repent, to repent. I, I don't know where the, the state of your soul is this morning. I don't know how or why you've decided to tune in to our live stream on Facebook today, but I do know this, that if you don't know Christ, your soul is in danger. It's in danger. Through this pandemic, God is trying to get all of our attention. He's helping us to see the realities of eternity. He is calling us to repentance. So come ye sinner, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. So heed the warning of Christ this day. Do you think that these 60,000 people who have died in the world from COVID-19 were worse sinners than you? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Amen. It's pretty good. Father, I pray that you would help us to feel the weight of eternity. And Lord, that in your mysterious providence, that you would use this virus to help us awaken to the danger of our souls, the danger of being one who is unrepentant in our sin. Father, I pray, Lord, that these, this dangerous virus would awaken us to the reality of our souls, help us see the dangers of eternity. And Lord, that by your grace, you would draw us to Jesus Christ, the wonderful, blessed Savior, who is ready to receive any unrepentant sinner who would turn from their sins, who would call out in desperation to Jesus, Lord, we know that you will rejoice in their turning, in their faith, and Lord, you will save because you are a blessed and gracious and loving Savior. God, I pray that this virus, this pandemic, we have a lot of questions about what this means and why and what you may be teaching us, Father, but we do know, Lord, that you are calling us to repentance, individually, corporately, globally, or that you are trying to awaken our souls to our spiritual danger, and Lord, that you're beckoning us to, to run to Christ. So, Father, I pray for any sinner listening. Lord, if they don't know Christ, I pray that today they would repent and trust in Jesus, or that they would send us a message on Facebook through our Facebook page, and or that we could talk with them and, and help them understand what it means to follow Jesus and have eternal life. God, we pray, Lord, that you would work in ways unforeseen and unprecedented. Father, we pray, Lord, that this virus might be used to, to stimulate a spiritual awakening by your spirit in our hearts, in our city, in our country, in our world, or that in the midst of this suffering, that the hope of the gospel might shine forth as we come to see the urgent state of our hearts. So Father, we pray for you to work. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.